This is the Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck and with me is Blake Stalker Curtis. G'day, g'day. And Derek Queen Elizabeth Armstrong. I get it. I don't. This episode <laughs> is called Sex, Lies and iPhone Tape and that's because we'll be talking about Steven Soderbergh's latest film, Unsane. What do you think about my names for the podcast, by the way? There's never any reaction. I put what, a lot of what, thought into it. What was it? I missed it. Just in general. Right? I never, wait, wait, if you told us what they were beforehand, we could like prepare a snappy response. Uh, but without uh, knowing, you just kind of like a deer in the headlights. You're like, that thing was just said. Okay, <laughs> we'll do the take two, guys. Tonight's episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce it in one moment, and it's sex, lies, and uh, iPhone I did tape. like okay. that. Yeah. Okay, are we ready? Yeah. Uh, okay. This episode is called Sex, Lies, and iPhone Tape. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because oh, we'll be right talking on. about Steven Soderbergh's latest film, Unsane. It's more like it. <laughs> Here's a synopsis that we found on the internet. It's a long one. Toya Valentini relocates from Boston to Pennsylvania to escape from the man who's been stalking her for the last two years. While consulting with a therapist, Valentini unwittingly signs in for a voluntary 24-hour commitment to the Highland Creek Behavioral Center... Her stay at the facility soon gets extended when doctors and nurses begin to question her sanity. Sawyer now believes that one of the staffers is her stalker and she'll do whatever it takes to stay alive and fight her way out. Derek, do you want to fill our thousands of listeners in on what makes this a particularly interesting film from a technical point of view? Can I first say something else? What, no. what do you reckon, Blakey? <laughs> I love that character's name, Sawyer Valentini. Yeah, it's a good name. I don't know why. I yeah, love I, it. And the, and the name of the film I quite liked. Oh, too. yeah, the name of the film's great. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, what now makes it you'll do what you're told. Is that, that this film, like the film uh, made by Sean Baker a couple of years ago, probably other examples, but those are the two I'm thinking of most prominently. Uh, Tangerine was that film. Shot entirely on an iPhone. And that obviously has its limitations. And uh, I think I'm probably not as qualified, maybe, as someone like Blake to talk about the limitations in terms. I I, I have I, I, lo- I assume it's most it was all real lighting, right? All natural lighting. Like he um, limitations, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Filmmaker. Like it, yeah, <laughs> it looked like it from what I yeah. Could tell. And I mean, it, it has a it has a an effect of kind of I I described it in my review as kind of a fisheye lens effect, but I think that had more to do with the proximity to the camera. Um, of the actors, like he, he really pressed it in close on them, and to get kind of this claustrophobic feeling toward their faces. But what else? Um, I mean, it, the aspect ratio ratio might have been a little bit different. Yeah. Um, the aspect ratio was different. What? I didn't think it was right in our cinema, John. Did you notice that? It looked like at the top, that like it was kind of like a bit of a triangle in the when we saw it at the Nova. Did you notice? Ah, uh, possibly it really, it really no. no. I slept through the whole thing. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what did you dream of? Did you dream uh, of Electric Sheep? I dreamt of you, Derek, Ooh. the whole time, like all dreams That's I have. That's so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sweet's one word for with it. Some <laughs> iPhone, with some iPhones as well, you can get um, like little magnet lenses that you can put onto the back. So I thought that as well. I, I thought he might have attached like a fisheye little lens. He did. Yeah. I, I read one of the reviews I read of it today. was talking about the lenses that he used. There were three different lenses. I could have written them down so I could bring it up here, but I didn't. Mm. And he also used a couple of different things. Um, uh, something like a selfie stick that wasn't a selfie stick to do a lot of camera movements. Mm. I guess again, I, I didn't write it down, so I can't really help you out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess other than finding it cool, I don't really know what we are experiencing differently from an aesthetic standpoint. I mean, obviously, I think it's mostly a budgetary thing, right? It doesn't yeah. cost anything. To, to you know to shoot um, because you just take, whip out your phone out of your pocket and start shooting. Um, I mean that's an exaggeration, but I, I I have to assume that the primary advantage that he gains from it is budgetary. Is that right? 
Well, I wonder. It cost her one point five million dollars. This movie. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, I wonder if he was trying to, you know, start a movement or, or like a bit like the dogma movement, which is the concept of um, back in the day they would use no lights. You just had to use whatever natural lights there were. I don't think there was any rehearsals. Yeah, they had like a, a number of obstructions, yeah. five obstructions or something that yeah. they had to use. And then any time you broke one of the rules, you had yeah. to write it down. And everyone who was part of this dogma movement. Always broke one of the rules. Wasn't there something for about eating shoes? For more information on the Dogma ninety five <laughs> movement, you could refer to our other podcast, John Robux Film School, of which there is a whole episode on Dogma ninety five. There sure yeah, was. Good. Very yeah. good, John. You should link it when you put the podcast. Nah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's it's weird if it is for budgetary constraints because one point five million is cheap, but it's not that cheap, and nah. it felt like it was cheaper it, than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we went to those Australian Film Awards the other the other week. Me and uh, me and Blakey did. Derek, you're probably not important enough to be invited. <laughs> Um, and, not. and, uh, and they had their different awards for best film under a certain budget and they kept on climbing up. Uh, and, uh, the ones for like a few hundred thousand dollars looked slicker than this film did. Mm. Uh, I, I think, I don't think the idea was to look slick. I think no, no, the no, idea no, no, de- no, definitely. Yeah. But, but if you're saying it's for budgetary reasons, then uh, where's the money? Yeah, yeah. Where's the, where, like where all that money go? Well, uh, and, I, honest, and I think, I, I think the aesthetic was really good, like suited the, the I film. I did too. Yeah. But to, to be honest, I think it's a little bit, I mean, given that, uh, that, that the technical side is not always my strong suit in this, I, it seems to me it's more like a gimmick than it really is, um, some, uh, an, an aesthetic choice that is so meaningful in and of itself. But yeah. but 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 you're a, a a camera guy and a filmmaker Blake. Do you do you have any ideas on what you get out of the iPhone that you wouldn't get from a conventional setup? Uh, not really. I, I wonder if I've been wondering whether it's more of a reflection of remember Soderbergh a while ago, probably 6 12 months ago, maybe even longer. He was talking about how he wanted to quit filmmaking because he didn't yeah. like the Hollywood system anymore. Yeah. I felt maybe this film was maybe a response to that. Well, I think uh, Logan Lucky was certainly a response to that because that was an experiment. I mean, he's an experimental filmmaker and that film yeah. wasn't experimental in its form, but it was experimental in, distri- in its distribution. Right. Uh, a failed experiment. And I actually think um, that's sort of, when I was looking, watching this film, I think, okay, he's an avid experimenter. Uh, but I think the impact of his experiments are sort of tarnished by the fact that he doesn't look beyond the experiment itself a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So he settles on this idea of an experiment, but then doesn't perhaps consider the other elements of filmmaking. I feel like the experience would be more of a success if the films were more of a success. And Steven Soderbergh's a good filmmaker, and a lot of me struggles to believe that he really thought a lot of this film yeah. was any good. Yeah. Uh, like yeah, the, the story is pretty the conventional. stalker as- yeah. aspect of it. And I think uh, if he wants these experiments of his to, um, to take, you know, um, gain a bit of, you know, momentum uh, or to get noticed, then he's going the wrong way about it because I think he's focusing solely on the experiment and yeah. not the actual film. Like well, with Logan Lucky, that was fine, but it was a very conventional film that, yeah. you know, like if he is going to play around with um, uh, distribution and try to sort of, yeah, push a new model of distribution forward. A movie like Logan Lucky is not going to be the one to do it. And I think no. Steven Soderbergh is a be- like he he can make better movies than Logan Lucky in his sleep. Yeah, did you I see? Agree. Did you see Bubble? <laughs> no. Bubble is a film that came out in about 2007, and it it is with all non-professional actors taking place in a pen- in a town in Pennsylvania where there's a doll factory, I believe, where people were working, and it's basically a relationship movie between. 
um, this young man and young woman and um, the jealousy of one of their co-workers. And I, and I don't remember all the plot details, but it is experimental. I mean, none of these people could act. There were no um, really intense emotions in it. And it actually kind of blew me away. And what was interesting about that is it's an experiment in every respect. Unsane is an experiment with uh, inverted commas around it because you've got the iPhone and you've got the distribution, but the actual story itself, really conventional. Um, and I say that as something as a person who actually quite liked the film, but I liked it a lot more in the first half. And as we got to the second half, I said, boy, this is really starting to hit the familiar beats mm. of a stalker story. The body count's starting to rise. Yeah. A lot of that stuff felt like it was just concessions to genre well, filmmaking, and it, and it weakened the film um, quite measurably. That's I exactly how I felt. I mean, yeah. it started off quite strong yeah. uh, with the idea of, um, you know, this sort of nightmare uh, scenario of the health system, mm -hmm. which, you know, was somewhat plausible. Um, and there was a horror in that, and then it just turned into a normal horror movie, and it became a woman in peril movie. Yeah. Right, and, and I, I and I think if it had kept on going with the uh, with this sort of realistic, almost like um, bureaucratic horror, yeah. uh, or uh, well, should we throw in a spoiler alert now? Because I think we I think we want to talk a little bit about where it actually does go. But Blake, you were about to say something else. Yeah, yeah. well, I was just going to say I agree with you both. Like I think we're all on the same page. For me, the moment that I stopped enjoying the film was when because I was enjoying it wondering is this in her head or mm -hmm. is this actually happening and I was toing and throwing on which one I believed and then when it became evidently clear that she's not insane she's unsane it's really it's really her I stalker was, that's yeah. when I was like oh I've seen this I'm bored now and it, well and it, I and felt it, like sort of a kind of jump the shark on this well and I, you didn't care about the stalker plot mm. it, it's it's just such a pedestrian yeah uh, been there, done that, uh, and especially I think the the staleness of that plot, and also just the um, the uh, over the topness of that plot is is highlighted by how interesting the original premise is, or like the, you know opening mm -hmm. half an hour is, and also by how great uh, Claire Foy's performance is. Yeah, she's yeah. terrific. And I think and next to those things, because you're expecting this film to go a certain way, which you know is sort of generates this interest, and then it goes this. Uninteresting way. I will say I was glad to see Joshua Leonard. Did, did you recognize him or did you know who he is, was? Is he the, he's a stalker? Yeah. He's in that awesome movie Hump Day. Have you ever seen Hump Day? He is, but he's yeah. also in The I Blair Witch he, Project. He is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was, I thought he was yeah. fantastic in this. Like, um, like I, yeah. he did very well because I was scared of that character, but I also pitied him and I also felt for him. I wanted, I cheered for him, but also... But don't you think to work out for him? It was this weird. I, I thought he, he he was fine, but his character was so poorly written. Yeah. The character might not have been See, fine for me, at least. Mm. Soderbergh didn't trust us to judge him and recognize that he was a bad person without giving him so many different over the top um, transgressions in this film. I mean, he kills several different people. Um, he he. Um, frames others and he he, get, he gets into the computers and mucks up all the paperwork so he can get her out of the so he can theoretically get her out um and he's just a really terrible person capable of a lot i would again have appreciated shades of gray there is he a bad person is he is he even her stalker for sure um are the hospital professionals or the um the medical administrators are they bad people, or do they really just want her to get better? Um, and the, the so the fact the fact is, if we had just stayed with her perspective the whole time, I think a lot of that would have been more gray. Mm. But you get the scenes like he shows up at her at her mother's hotel room uh, as a, a repair worker, and, so, and 
and just I'll, I know you're wanting to say something, John, but let's get one more thought in. How quickly he sets up this job at this pl- that, that at this was, place? Uh, how does he even where, do? Yeah. How does well, he even do that's that? That's where I fell out of yeah. the film because I was like, "There's no way that what did so did she go there and then he gets a job, or did he get a job there hoping that she happens yeah. to go to that mental institution yeah. and convict her?" Like it's just bizarre. Soderbergh's so a frustrating filmmaker in that regard. I mean, he there, there's so many interesting things about all these films, and then he'll you know, uh, associate it with so many uninteresting things. Yeah. And and he's he's clearly a smart filmmaker and he's made, made films that make you think, how did you honestly think that this was an okay plot? Mm. And, ha- ha- you know, like, ha- how didn't you think about this well, more than you did? That's, the, that's what I think the Hollywood system does offer. Even though I know, like, filmmakers hate having people in suits who don't know the creative art telling them what they should be doing with their film. But when you have someone pushing against you and saying, this doesn't make sense or you should do that, you pick and choose which battles you want to fight for and which ones you don't. And I think that constant pressure going against you is good because it keeps you in the zone of what you should be doing. I think if a filmmaker is allowed to just go off willy-nilly and just have complete freedom... yeah. Shit like this happens, and I think this is what happens with Spielberg at the moment. He's just given too much free reign, and at the moment, or also for the last two decades. Soderbergh is also capable of, I think, of a really nuanced script. Like there, I can think of a number of examples, but one of them is one of the one of his most recent films, the one right before he retired, called Side Effects. I don't know if you guys were big fans of that, but I thought the plot in that was quite intricate in a very involving way and a lot of kind of traditional reversals and and kind of you're not sure who to trust and who's an, who's a reliable narrator and this was just so much more broad by comparison to that. I, I check that out with a lot, of, a lot of Soderbergh unfortunately. I mean, I've yeah. seen Contagion, Traffic, Aaron. I've, I've seen yeah. all these like I mean, I've got all the ocean movies and Sex Lies and Videotapes, but he makes he's so yeah. prolific. Yeah. Uh, that uh, he's a filmmaker that a lot of his films fall under the radar. Have either of you seen Traffic recently? No. Because I, l- I loved it when I was younger. Yeah, I think it holds but up. then, hey, name drop Zoe. Mm. If uh, if you're tuning in now, Zoe's on the podcast. Caster, we miss her. I think it was her. She said she mentioned she saw it recently and said it was terrible, mm. absolutely awful. Is that what you experienced? Same way. Yeah. Wow. Because I, 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 I didn't see Traffic when it came out. And I saw it years later and I was like, I don't get pretty, it. I don't get pretty it. on the nose oh, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. That's what I would guess. But yeah. I also just don't like that the, 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 the shooting style of that film. Uh, the different filters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the zooms and all that kind of stuff. Anytime um, I'm – like with a zoom, uh, I, I'm conscious that what I'm watching is being filmed by a camera and then I'm like I'm watching a film and therefore it takes me completely out of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. As soon as I see a camera – like, ah, I got a soft spot for the old zooms. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, each <laughs> Literally can't think of a single zoom <laughs> at, in, in cinema. <laughs> what, what's what's, what's the a zoom? zoom? What's the zoom? Oh, God, what's it called? You'll know this, Blakey. Uh, well, you'll probably know this, Derek, and I, and I normally know this and I've just forgotten. The Vertigo Jaws zoom. What's that called again? It's, it's like a smash zoom or where it pulls uh, in. No, it pushes in and zooms, zooms out yeah. at the same time. So it pushes in on a dolly. Uh, Hitchcock pioneered it for those those shots in Vertigo. Yeah, yeah I'm ju- I, it um, does have a name like Smash Smash uh, Zoom, but it's not Smash Zoom. It's something. Anyway, for uh, if you want to find out what the name is, go to yeah. a better podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, Zoe will write in and tell us for next week. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah but yeah, so uh, 
like a, a zoom is kind of like uh, when it's like if I was to shoot you right now and I'm uh, in a wide shot, so I'm, I'm catching With a camera. your head and your body and everything. Are you answering my question? What oh, is a did zoom? you actually? It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's uh, all we have time. Has it been that long since we've had a podcast <laughs> together, yeah, Blake? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny what you said about um, the shades of gray because I, yeah. I I did I did think there were shades of gray, but that that's just me. I think that I weirdly could relate to his character I guess because I'm a stalker well, that's and that's all we have time for tonight ladies and <laughs> gentlemen <laughs> right. what I did really enjoy is um, when she took the pill that she wasn't meant to take yeah that's, that effect that effect that yeah. he created that was really uh, cool yeah, yeah. Um, do you think he did that in the camera or do you think he did it in editing I think he did it in editing yeah. I think he probably it's too uh, what are they called? Um, Superimposed. Oh this is another thing I know what it's called. Transition? No, no, no. That um, snor- Snorri cam or Snorri cam. It's when they attach a camera and it's fixed to the position. So when you turn, it turns oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, Nori yeah. cam, I think. Oh, I don't know what it's oh, called. Man. from the front. And, and from the, the back. Oh, and okay. then it would have been like yeah, an yeah, overlay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It it, that, that looked really cool. Yeah. And Claire Foy was awesome. Have you seen the Crown Lady? No. You have, haven't you? Derek? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's yeah, she's this role is completely different from what she from when she plays Queen Elizabeth uh, in the first two decades of her reign. Um, and that's less when, drugs in this film though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's what made me really excited about the possibility for Foy. She's actually going and continuing to go in this direction. She's actually doing uh, Elizabeth Salander in the next uh, Girl with series. Good it's choice a, or bad choice by her. Possibly bad uh, choice. Possibly bad choice. But look, she's try- she's in a phase of, of new exposure right now, yeah. and she's kind of taking whatever's being offered to her. I think. But yeah. um, but look, she's she's capable of so much nuance here. There's there's the little adjustments of her face. I mean, I, I'm, that's something I'm always talking about. I feel like in my reviews is the small adjustments of actors' faces. But you really yeah, can tell the way someone is chewing on a scene and the way that they're grappling with that moment by these little adjustments they make. And I think she's really excellent at that. And the struggle between if I go too crazy here they'll really think I'm crazy but I have to be indignant too and I have to say look I really do not belong here mm. oh that's what a crazy person would say you know she's has this struggle what I my problem was she did everything that was required of her I just thought that those scenes needed so much more ambiguity and so much more delving into this idea that we don't know if we can trust her and yeah. and, and Soderbergh lets us trust her probably less than halfway through the film. And then the second half is all just well, like the, we're the, on her side trying to figure out The second half completely jettisons that like concept almost completely. Yeah. Like the the whole uh, idea of whether she's crazy or not is solved. Yeah. Uh the the insurance subplot sort of is goes on the back burner until the end. Again, right. also just convenient that it kind of worked out yeah. for her in that way. Like it was just a bit too Yeah. Neat. I also thought I also thought the film had a, an essentially kind of a, a a bad faith attitude towards some of its characters as well. Like I really didn't like the usage of Juno Temple's character the other girl in the place and especially with regards to how Sawyer treats her because she's she and Sawyer have this rivalry but clearly it's not as mean-spirited as as they would have it believed I'm mean, obviously and it turns out it's true this character has a crush on her well essentially she sacrifices the character's life to get out of to us to, to escape of course the escape is only short-lived because it's one of those genre conventions where the, the person you've just escaped from has to find you 10 minutes later because you do such a poor job of escaping. But but I was really, I, I mean, maybe she didn't expect that to happen, but I really kind of felt grossed out by that too, that like yeah, this was girl un- just un- gets un- her very neck broken. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just, well, but she's just kind of used as fodder in this whole escape plan. And mm. Anyway, um, 
even though I'm saying all these negative things, I actually did quite like the film in a lot of respects, and I thought it had a lot to offer. But I think that's more to due to to Foy than to maybe some of the other choices made. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, inten- um, I unintentionally made a summation statement there, didn't I? Yeah, no, yeah. That was good. No, well, it's, it's hard to follow. I felt you. I felt you wrapping up, and I just sort of sank into uh, into apathy about this. The rest of the episode. I have, I have another. Have another sip of your tea. I I my tea's finished. Eyes, you didn't put enough water in there, mate. It's all gone. Um, yeah, no, I, I quite liked um, the the other character that was in there. Uh, I don't know the, the actor. Who Jay Farrow. Yeah, I yeah, thought he was the, the journalist. And yeah. you know what? Actually, it, the film reminded me of in the, at the beginning is um, oh Roman Polanski's film with all the the eyes in the wall. Repulsion. Yeah, repulsion. Mm-hmm. I've got a really strong mm-hmm. repulsion vibe, and I was like, oh, awesome! Like, yeah, I'm gonna be really into this, especially at the start when she's lying to her mother on the phone, and it's just like, oh, and you know the sleazy boss and just it was like it was nice and subtle i loved well, the subtlety and mm. then the subtlety just evaporated well, it's completely yeah. changed it changed what type of film it was completely yeah i mean yeah it, you it set it up to you for you to expect this whole film about this you know uh, uh health system and whether she was sane or not and the insurance thing and whether this guy was actually the stalker and, and then it solved it all and there was nothing left to care about. Can I about. tell you, though, f- what one tip-off to the type of film it wants to be also? The final shot. Do you remember how it ends on a freeze frame of her after she leaves that restaurant mm. and the credits roll over her? 70s paranoia thriller. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you, at the very end, Soderbergh, and Soderbergh's made films of that nature before, but I feel like it was like a little bit more spaghetti thrown against the wall. Like, at the very end, he's like, I'm going to slap a... The 70s paranoia vibe on the closing credits and make you, you know, wonder how much of it happened. Well, no, those 70s paranoia thrillers, were, some of them were confusing as fuck because you couldn't tell, um, like you didn't know really who to trust. Like I don't know if you've ever seen the Parallax View, but like you watch the whole Parallax View and you still don't know what happened at the end. And I think this film needed a little bit more of that. If it Absolutely, wanted, if it wanted to a lot be more that. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, should we move on to top three? Sure. Plaguey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so top three uh, films that uh, address mental health in some sort of fashion. Is that... No, it's like it's top three dinosaur films. Oh. You didn't get the memo. Oh. <laughs> I knew you'd get me again with this dinosaur joke. I have Land Before fi- Time 4 through 6 as my choices. Yeah, Is that good. okay? Yeah. Wait, what did you say? Land Before Time 4 through 6. Oh, absolutely. My, yeah, and that's all we have time for? Yeah. Good night. Uh, <laughs> no, okay, Blakey. Uh, go. Yeah. Um, so I, I, for me, this is a quite a really good subject because I... I hold you know this kind of stuff near and dear to my heart um like films that are about kind of mental health i think it's really important that there should be more of them and and we should be talking about more of them so you know any film that attempts to address that kind of stuff is yeah awesome in my book um i don't know if it counts so i've done four because i just don't know if this i've done four too great okay (laughs) (laughs) you look so happy when you said that Derek. it's the happiest i've ever seen my day Uh, number four for me is A Beautiful Mind. Mm. Um, oh, good choice. That was that that film when I, I remember seeing that for the first time. And I think that was because I was young when I saw it. That was the first time that I kind of realized that people are dealing with that kind of stuff in mm. their everyday life. And the way that that ca- Russell Crowe's character deals with it, it just I was so proud. I was just amazed that people were walking around and have the strength to kind of the bat- pencils. face those demons every day. The pencils get me every time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I always just I always think about the scene where uh, a, I think a new character comes up to him and says hello and he has to ask one of his students 
the egos, do you see that person? Mm-hmm. Is that person there? And yeah. I'm like, oh, imagine living your life yeah. like that. Like, it, I just really empathise with that character. Well, there's a scene in the movie where one of the doctors essentially says, imagine you're living, living your life like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has pretty acute schizophrenia, I think. I mean, there's different, yeah, forms of it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I don't know if it really addresses it. I'm going to say that it does, um, is Beautiful Kate. Which is my favorite Australian film. Do all the ever films made. on your list start with the word beautiful? <laughs> no, actually. No. But I was thinking about a beautiful life, but I, you know, I couldn't get that in there because I don't think that's really about mental health. Beautiful Kate's um, a film about uh, kids who live out in the outback um, and spoil it. Um, there's incestuous kind of vibes. They, the, these kids are isolated and they love each other. Um, it deals with depression, it deals with suicide, it deals with death in such a beautifully Australian way because. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a huge issue in Australia and not, not necessarily incest, but depression. And I think it's uh, dealt with very, very nicely in this film. I still um, have to see it, yeah. The, the Apparently there's a, a town on the way to Colac, which is the incest capital of Victoria. Although really? one of our friends told us that, so told me that on, when we were driving there. You know and I haven't seen anything on the drive-thru, so... Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and number two for me is also one of my all-time favourite films, um... Oh, American Beauty. There you go. There you go. <laughs> didn't even realize. Oh, yeah, American Beauty. There you go. Um, that's, uh, I don't know, again, I think it's about mental, I'm pretty sure it's about mental, well, it is. It's 100% about mental health, even if they don't hit you over the head among about multiple, it. Among multiple characters. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that, that film just blew me away. And, you know, no matter, I I think I've said this in the before in the podcast, I've been trying to work out what to do with, you know, the work of Kevin Spacey and stuff no. like that. And I still... I refuse not to watch this film because yeah. I think that so many people go into making a film. We shouldn't let one rotten egg ruin the film. Uh, and then in the past too, so far in the past. Yeah. I mean, not that those things weren't happening then with him, but yeah. anyway. And that's your a, point is taken. That film like spoke to me. Well, you'd have a, to cancel out a lot of Hollywood or yeah, like yeah, a lot yeah. of yeah. Fil- you know international filmmakers sure. yeah. oeuvre. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you were going to uh, cancel, never watch Chinatown who, again. You know. Yeah. 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 And that. F- so I watched that film as a sixteen-year-old. Oof. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused with oof, which is egg. <laughs> Maybe I meant egg. <laughs> I watched that film as a 16-year-old boy, yeah. and for whatever reason, a film about a guy having a midlife crisis in America just spoke to me, and yeah. I kind of changed my life from that, really. And number one is one that... Beauty and the Beast. Jaws just <laughs> has been telling me to watch for a very, very long time, and I finally did watch it just recently. You finally watched Debbie Does Dallas? <laughs> No, I said I'd wait for you on that one. Is Parenthood. Woo! Um, oh, that yeah. That film in dealing with anxiety um, in that, in the, that, the, the sun mm. and how Steve Martin deals with it is just so beautiful and touching. And oh, my God, I'm getting choked really, up right here. Yeah. Really hit a nerve on, with yeah. me on that I one. think you've hit a record for the amount of times you've said beautiful in a podcast <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> Parenthood. Top, it's in my top ten of all time. Yeah, Such a good movie. True. Yeah. Maybe the most underrated movie of all time. Yeah. Derek. Yeah. Um, so I didn't choose ones that, uh, as the, neither did you, but I thought I was going to make this point anyway, that dealt clinically with um, mental health, like, you know, in a the sanitarium or something like that, because a lot of those are, you know, uh, a bit heavy handed. So mine were mine are kind of a grab bag like yours as well. Um, the first one I chose was Take Shelter, the Jeff Nichols film from a couple years back. Good where score. Mike, Michael Shannon is uh, grappling with this idea that the world might be ending or that the apocalypse is coming and his family 
um, and his friends realize that nope, he's just losing his sanity. And um, with the uh, like, we're talking about the ambigu- ambiguity we wished had been in this film. Uh, there is a lot of ambiguity in Take Shelter because it's left open ended whether he really is building the shelter to, to stave off an apocalypse, uh, or whether it's all the, whether what we see is a visual representation of his uh, mind frittering away. So um, that was my first choice. Uh, my second choice was Pink Floyd, The Wall. Mm-hmm crazy <laughs> over the oh shit i forgot the lyrics anyway <laughs> it's it addresses it there that this that this guy that pink um is his name pink i can't remember the character's name is crazy he's a rock star who's trying to um live down the demons from his childhood and um, live through a rock star's existence where he really is losing it at any given time and the visual representations in that film and the soundtrack just um, make it a, a kind of a brilliant consideration of the whole topic um, the next one, Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York. Oh, great choice. Which is about a man who can only be described as going crazy as he tries to make a, a, fi- a play about his entire life that includes multiple versions of actors playing himself and then actors playing the actors playing himself and playing all the characters in his life and a giant set that's being built that takes up 10 city blocks. And um, there's no other way to view it than that he's losing his mind as he tries to get through writer's block. And I think it's really fascinating looking. I need to see that again because I hated it when I first saw it. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to watch. It's a hard one to get your head around. It's a bit. It's a. It's a giant meal. Yeah. It's I a just. Giant meal. I just think Charlie Kaufman shouldn't direct his own movies. I You've think... said that before. We know your thoughts on that. <laughs> Anomalisa is my rebuttal to that. And then number one um, is uh, is pure, purely in terms of my love of the film, and not in terms of necessarily how it deals with mental health. Is Donnie Darko. Oh. God, Derek, great choices. Because Donnie Darko is crazy motherfucker, but <laughs> um, but we love him, and he sees a giant uh, man in a bunny costume telling him to um, do all sorts of heinous things. Mm. But he's just trying to make it through the world and taking his pills and trying to keep it together, you know. Uh, and it's that movie goes all over the place, but at its core, it's really about his, his mental health. Mm. That's awesome. <clears throat> My number three is Robert Aldrich's "Whatever Happened to Baby Jane." With Joan Crawford and Bette Davis. I haven't seen it. Me neither. I've heard too good bad. things about that too. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. My number two is Through a Glass Darkly, the Ingmar Bergen movie. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. And my number one is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Awesome. I was almost going to list that as an audible mention, but then I thought John's going to have it. Too, yeah. <laughs> and that's my favorite book of all time, that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you get a chance, read that. I, You know what I didn't like? We're, we're running out of time, but you know what I didn't like? The two things I thought in the movie improved upon the book, and there's a spoiler, spoilers here. I liked that the uh, movie didn't have Chief's voiceover because the book is told from Chief's point of view, mm. and I really love the ending of the book where all the other uh, inmates or uh, patients wake up and see Chief, Chief escaping, which doesn't happen in the book, and I think it's a really nice moment. Mm. Uh, uh, 11 picks, 11, 11 different choices. Interesting. Ooh. Mm. For our top three. <laughs> oh, uh, Blakey, final thoughts on what movie? Unsane. Uh, yeah, I, I, great title, uh, great character name. I think it's worth going to see because I think, you know, some people might love it. My th- final thought is I liked a lot about it. If you're going to see it, see it fast because I was the only one in the cinema the other night when I saw it. Mm. Uh, and my final thought is I agree with both of you. This has been the Real Good Podcast. Uh, thank you, Derek. Uh, I was looking at Blakey. Yeah, look at me when you thank say you, my Derek. Name, damn it. <laughs> uh, and thank you, Blakey. No problem. Mate. 
For more things related to film, go to realgood.com.au. That's real with two E's. We've got reviews. We've got videos. We've got other podcasts. We've got the Real Good Online Film Festival. Uh, and if you go through a secret section of the website, which I'm not going to explain how to do here, there's an Easter egg. There's heaps of photos of Derek naked. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.